0: At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Hallie. Let us pray. Open our hearts and minds, O God, to hear the message you intend for each one of us from the word just read and the words to come. Amen. The time has come. The time is now. Just go, go, go. I don't care how. You can go by foot or you can go by cow. Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? Are you familiar with that Dr. Seuss book, Marvin K. Mooney? I read it to my kids when they were little, and I look forward to this time when I get to read it to my grandchildren, although I probably can't be in too big of a hurry for that, since none of our five daughters are married yet, and they range from high school to college to graduate school. Anyway, the protagonist of this book is an unassuming, furry little fellow who nonchalantly seems to be walking through life when all of a sudden, a larger-than-life hand comes out of the blue, booms into his little world, and says with a certain, amount of, a certain amount of urgency, the time has come, the time is now. But we aren't really sure what's so pressing for Marvin K. Mooney, just where it is that he has to go, but we sense the pressure of getting it done In our scripture passage for today, we find Jesus to be just a little bit more direct, don't we? There is no question what Jesus is telling his disciples to do now. It sounds like turn or burn. And I'm hopeful that we can coax a good word out of this passage for us this morning, for us gentle Presbyterians. Jesus had just finished a little teaching on judgment when some people came to him to tell him about a horrible thing that had happened to some people that were from Galilee. That bloodthirsty thirsty Pontius Pilate had slaughtered a group of Galileans who were on their way to worship. It's hard to imagine the horror, isn't it? Several families on their way to, work, on their way to church just murdered in ancient Israel, culture and tradition would have hinted that those people must have done some really bad sinning to be struck down in that way. This may have been amped up just a bit more because the citizens were living in fear of that unpredictable tyrant named Pilate. Perhaps, perhaps if some explanation of the massacre is provided, then they can afford that kind of beha- they can avoid that kind of behavior and keep themselves and their families safe and alive. As if reading their minds, Jesus says, do you think that because those Galileans suffered in that way, that they're worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Everyone inside is whispering, yeah, and I'm glad I'm not a sinner like them. But Jesus clears this up in one breath, and he says, no, they are no worse than you, but I tell you, if you, unless you repent, you will perish just like they did. And then Jesus gives his own example of when bad things happened to good people. A tower in Siloam fell and accidentally killed 18 innocent people. Did they do anything to deserve this? Jesus says, nope. No more than the Haitians deserved the hurricane. No more than the Italians deserved the earthquake. Or the Chinese deserve the flooding. Bad things can and will happen to good people without a moment's notice. And what are we supposed to do with this uncertainty? With this randomness? Jesus says twice. The time is now. Repent or you'll perish just like they did. But then Jesus gives us just a little bit of hope in the form of a fig tree. A man is walking through his vineyard, and he sees a lovely fig tree with deep green leaves. There's one tiny little problem. This tree has not been planted as a decoration or as something just to look at. It was planted to bear fruit. Now, this is the third year in a row that this tree has taken up valuable resources, land and water, and it still hasn't produced any fruit. So, the landowner tells the gardener to get the axe. Not unlike Abraham pleading for the people in Sodom, or Moses pleading for the Israelites, this gardener is asking for just a little more time to help coax out some of the beautiful fruit. Sir, please, please, let me just work the soil just a little bit. Let me put together a nutrient-rich mixture of fertilizer. Just give me a year just to pour into this little guy, and and who knows? Maybe we'll get some fruit. The command to repent or perish is softened with a little bit of manure, a little bit of help from the gardener in our lives. I read that the Greek word for perish in this example is referring to eternity, not just mortality. Of course we're all going to die. We're all human. We usually don't know when, when or where, but to perish is something lifted up as having eternal consequences. Jesus is saying, repent now so we can be together forever. And I wonder if maybe Jesus is also saying, repent now so you don't miss out on the joy in living. To repent is one of Luke's favorite verbs. The Greek verb to repent means to change one's mind. It refers to a 180 degree change of mind and heart. Versions of the verb to repent show up in about 50 times in the New Testament. Over half of those are recorded by Luke. Luke names lots of repenters, like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, like the prodigal son, or Zacchaeus, See, these people, their lives were filled with conflict, often shameful behavior and misery. But they're the lucky ones, I think, because they hit some sort of bottom that didn't kill them, and they had a chance to repent. Or they had some sort of encounter with Christ, or with a gardener of God's, and then they repented. They turned towards God, and then they got to experience the joy in life that comes from love and mercy, and unexpected grace, and then their lives began producing fruit. The fig tree was deemed worthless by fruit-producing fig tree standards. Yet the gardener is saying, let me spend some time with this one. By all rules, Skinner was a dead man. With these words, Arthur Brezzi begins his retelling of the day that he found his best friend in a World War II Japanese concentration camp. The two were high school buddies. They grew up in Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania, playing ball, skipping school, going on double dates. Arthur and Skinner were inseparable. It made sense then that when one joined the army, the other one would as well. They rode the same troop ship to the Philippines. That's where they were separated. Skinner was on a baton when it fell to the Japanese in 1942. Arthur Brezzi was captured a month later. Through the prison grapevine, Arthur learned the whereabouts of his friend Skinner, who was close to death in a nearby camp. Arthur volunteered for work duty in the hope that his company might pass through the other camp. One day, it did. Arthur requested, and he was given five minutes to find and to speak to his friend. He knew to go to the sick side of the camp. It was divided into two sections, one for those who expected to recover, the other for those who were given no hope. Those expected to die lived in a barracks called Zero Ward. That's where Arthur found Skinner. He called his name, and out of the barracks walked a 79-pound shadow of the friend that he had once known. Arthur wrote this, I stood at the wire fence of the Japanese prisoner of war camp on Luzon and watched my childhood buddy, caked in filth, racked with pain of multiple diseases, totter towards me. He was dead, only his boisterous spirit hadn't left his body. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. His blue eyes, watery and dulled, locked on me and wouldn't let go. Malaria, dysentery, scurvy, beriberi. Skinner's body was a dormitory for tropical diseases. He couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, he was nearly gone. Arthur didn't know what to do or what to say. His five minutes was nearly up, and then he began to finger the heavy knot in the handkerchief that was tied around his neck. It was his high school class ring. At the risk of punishment, he had smuggled it into the camp. Knowing the imminence of disease and the scarcity of treatment, he had been saving it to barter for medicine or food for himself. But one look at Skinner, and he knew he couldn't save it any longer. As he told his friend goodbye, he slipped the ring through the fence into Skinner's frail hand, and he told him to wheel and deal it. Skinner objected. Arthur insisted. He turned and left, pretty sure that he would never see his friend alive again. What kind of mercy and love is this? It's one thing to give a a gift to the healthy, It's one thing to share a treasure with the strong who can benefit from the gift and maybe even pay it forward. But to give your best to the weak, to entrust your treasure to the dying, now that's saying something. That's saying don't give up hope. You have value. Here, let me work the soil around your roots and add some nutrients to help you produce fruit and live even if it's only for a short time. Do you know anyone who's standing on Skinner's side of the fence? A kid in class who's teased? A friend with cancer? A spouse with depression? If you know anyone who is afraid, or has failed, or is frail, then we know someone who needs the special care and nutrients of grace And love to help coax out the fruit of life. After Albert Einstein's wife died, his sister Maja moved in to assist with the household affairs. For 14 years, she cared for him, allowing his valuable research to continue. In 1950, she suffered a stroke and she lapsed into a coma. Thereafter, Einstein spent two hours every afternoon reading aloud to her from Plato. She gave no sign of understanding his words, but he read anyway. If she, if she understood anything by his gesture, she understood this. He believed that she was worth his time, that she was valuable and worthy of love. I think Jesus calls us into this dance of Grace. The fruitless fig tree doesn't deserve it. The dying man doesn't deserve it. And we certainly don't deserve it. Yet God pours out his love onto all of us. Then God uses us and joins us in the encounter with each other. All of a sudden, we're producing fruit, and we're also coaxing fruit out of others. And I think, I think that's the kind of joy that Jesus doesn't want us to miss. Whether we are giving or whether we're receiving, and that's why the time is now. Randy Poche was a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon who became acutely aware of how how precious time is when he is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. In an effort to leave some wisdom and some stories for his three young children, Randy wrote the book, The Last Lecture, before he died at the age of 47. In this book, he tells the story when he and his sister were at Disney World with their parents. He was 12, his sister was 14, and their parents figured that they were now old enough to roam the park by themselves without being monitored. This was 1972. In those days, before cell phones, the parents told them to be careful, and they named the spot where they would meet in 90 minutes. The kids were thrilled beyond belief. They were at the coolest place on earth, and they had the freedom to explore it on their own. They were so grateful to their parents for taking them there and for recognizing that they were mature enough to be on their own, that they decided to pool their allowance and buy their, their parents a present. So they went into a store, and they found what they thought was the perfect gift, a ceramic salt and pepper shaker featuring two bears hanging from a tree. They paid their $10 and they skipped down Main Street in search of their next attraction. Randy was holding the bag and in a horrible instant, it slipped out of his hands, crashing to the pavement. The thing broke on impact and he and his sister were in tears. An adult guest who had seen everything that happened went up to him and said, Take it back to the store. I'm sure they'll give you a new one. And Randy objected. He's I can't do that. It was my fault. I dropped it. Why would a store give me another one? She encouraged them just to try. So they went back to the store, and they didn't lie. They explained everything that had happened. The employees in the store listened to their sad story and smiled at them and told them that they could have a new salt and pepper shaker. The Disney employees even said it was their fault because they hadn't wrapped the original salt and pepper shaker well enough. Their message was, our packaging should have been able to withstand the fall of a 12-year-old's overexcitement. The kids were in shock, filled with gratitude, giddy with joy. Unexpected, undeserved grace does that. And one of the best things that I've discovered about God's economy is that it doesn't matter if you're on the giving end or the receiving end. The love and the mercy causes these reverberations of joy that are felt by everybody who's involved. We don't want to miss that. Fruitless fig trees are all around us, and I'm pretty sure I've had my fair share of seasons without producing much fruit, but the owner the owner is looking for fruit. God created this world with beautiful people who need each other to bear fruit. And please do not assume that any of us sitting in church today, whether on this side of the pulpit or that side of the pulpit, are automatically the gardeners. We are in this together, and we're not going to get it right every time. But if we stay connected to the owner of the vineyard, and we respond to each other with love, mercy, and grace that we have received, then maybe we can coax out some good fruit in each other. Think about where you normally spend your time and your money, where you get your hair cut, where you shop for groceries, or play golf, or play cards, or get your morning coffee, or who you sit by in the bleachers watching lacrosse or soccer or baseball, do you know their names? Do you know their stories? Can you tell when your barista needs a little encouraging? You know, that's what Jesus did. He connected with the people, and he wasn't afraid to connect with the people whose lives were not producing any fruit. Actually, he seemed to dwell among those who were often getting it wrong. But he didn't do it from a place of judgment or superiority. He did it from a place of unconditional love. He went into the home of the crooked tax collector. He spoke with the adulterous woman in a public place. He touched the terminally ill, the forgotten, the outcast, the children. Jesus didn't care what kind of lifestyle they were living, and he never asked people to join me in the temple. He always went to them, and he spent time with them, building relationships, coaxing fruit. That's why Jesus was so intoxicating to be with. He was authentic and genuine. He looked people in the eyes. He used their name and knew their story. He met their needs and he stood next to them when they were judged and ridiculed and left for dead. So you want to know what happened to Skinner? He took the ring from his high school friend, Arthur, and he buried it in the barracks floor. The next day, he took the biggest risk of his life. He approached the kindest of the guards, and he passed the ring through the fence. The guard asked Skinner if it was valuable. Skinner assured him that it was. The guard smiled and slipped the ring into his pocket, and he left. A couple of days later, the guard walked by Skinner and dropped a package at his feet sulfanilamide tablets. A day later, he returned with limes to combat the scurvy. Then came a new pair of pants and some canned beef. Within three weeks, Skinner was on his feet. Within three months, he was taken to the healthy side of the sick camp. In time, he was able to work. As far as Skinner knew, he was the only American ever to leave the Zero Ward alive. Both Skinner and Arthur somehow survived their ordeal and they went when they met up at home in Mount Carmel Skinner brought with him a small box for Arthur an exact copy of the high school ring that saved his life Friends we can't underestimate the power of love to add the nutrients and the care around the trees that seem barren nor can we overestimate the amount of time we have. The time has come. The time is now. Just go, go. I don't care how. You can go by foot or you can go by cow. Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? I said go, and go I meant. The time had come. So Marvin went. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we... We're so grateful for your presence in our life, and we are so grateful that you never give up on us. We ask, Lord, that you would encourage us to be encouragers to others, that you would help us approach those who seem alone or frail or afraid, and help us, Lord, to see them, to learn their name, to hear their story. And Lord, to reach them with your love, that we might coax fruit out of them, and in doing so, maybe even coax a little fruit out of us as well. In your son's name we pray, amen.
0: Your love never fails, it never